I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of Prospect Magazine. This week we're talking to the writer Colin McCann about his recently published bestseller, A Paragon, a novel that is based off a real-life friendship between a Palestinian and an Israeli. The book has already made several bestseller lists internationally and attracted critical praise, indeed, even in the pages of Prospect, drawing admiration for its refreshing and empathetic angle to the Israel-Palestine conflict. McCann wrote the novel after four years of research, and his story is based on two men he met, Rami, an Israeli who lost his daughter to a suicide bombing, and Bassam, a Palestinian whose child was shot by an Israeli soldier. Our arts and books editor Samir Rahim talks to Colm about how he went about researching the book and the role of fiction in supporting empathy. But before we hear from Samir with Colm, Samir joins me right now from uh, another location somewhere else in London. Samir, how are you? Hello, how are you, Steve? How's, how's it going? It's going all right. Lockdown's uh, fine for me. Uh, I thought we could talk today about, since, this is, uh, since we're talking to a novelist today, about the reading that we've been doing uh, over the last two or three weeks. Uh, you've obviously had a bit more reading than most to do because... As some of our regular listeners and readers will know, you're a judge on this year's Booker Prize. So uh, obviously you can't talk too much about those books, but how's your reading going generally? Yeah, so it's a, it's a novel a day for the Booker, but I do try and, in spare moments, see what calls out to me from my shelves. Like a lot of other people, Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year um, certainly became more relevant to me. It's one of those books that, I mean, I had it on my shelf for a long time. I think I tried reading it about 10 years ago got about a couple of pages in and just sort of gave up. But it's funny how when circumstances change, books become more, not exactly relevant, they take on the sort of an aura about them and you feel like, wow, this is really sort of calling me from the shelves, it's really attracting me. So I, I, I took it down and I was absolutely compelled by it. It's sort of fiction and sort of not, because it's actually about the plague in 1665. Um, Defoe was very young then, but it, it's... It's an extraordinary work, and it's it, it is very resonant for our times. I mean, I had to give up about on page one hundred when he started to go into all the dead children and the pustules forming on breastfeeding babies, and it just became too much actually. Um, so, so that was that was my that's my first um, pandemic read. Well, I had a similar sort of uh, experience, although mine was less deliberate. Um, I started reading Wolf Hall for the first time. 
Um, and uh, and probably got about a quarter of the way through before actually all the storylines about plague and death, um, which obviously, you know, Hilary Mantel writes incredibly beautifully and evocatively, just felt a little bit too close to the bone. Um, so I, I switched it for uh, uh, for something uh, for something less about pandemics, uh, which was um, uh, Girl, Woman, Other, which, um, you know, since you're judging this year's booker, I might as well dive into uh, uh, last year's winner. I'd already read the other winner, which, let's face it, is Bernadine Evaristos. Are you allowed to say anything about that last year's? That, that's kind of not you. You can say what you want, can't you? I can say what I want. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. Um, and we were doing an interview with Bernadine, uh, a profile, which uh, our colleague Rebecca is uh, going to be writing up uh, very soon. And looking forward to that. Yeah, no, she's a fascinating figure. She's been somebody who's been around for quite a long time, really. And has always been you know, respected and reviewed and uh, without really breaking through in, in the way that she has now. And I think it's just a fantastic good news story for, uh, for literature. The other reading I've been doing is uh, sort of, you know, less taxing in terms of, uh, you know, understanding it, but uh, slightly more taxing in terms of uh, who I'm reading to. I've been reading a lot of uh, Julia Donaldson to uh, to my three year old son. Um, we've been getting through quite a. We've been we've been doing a bit of reading time every day. It's been good fun, but uh, it's got to a stage where he knows the book so well now that he doesn't actually need me to read them to to him. We need some new ones. Yeah, and this uh, one of the funny things is about getting hold of books because obviously Amazon have deprioritized books, which does it does just bring home to you and all of us, I think, how absurd it is to have one website which sells both medical supplies and books. <laughs> and uh, if this, you know, the book trade is struggling at the moment, uh, books are being delayed, and you know, it's a bit, it's it's a difficult time. But if this does lead to some kind of reassessment of how we get hold of books and how we um, how we purchase them, both from a sort of bookseller point of view, but from a con- also from a consumer point of view, uh, maybe waiting a few more days or a day or two longer to uh, get it from your independent bookshop or from foils or from Waterstones would, would be a much healthier situation all around. Well, it is interesting how it's the, uh, the independent bookshops, um, just anecdotally, I know a few that either I or friends use, are doing quite a good service in terms of sending books to people in a way that they perhaps didn't before. So, uh, yeah, it, it, despite the fact we can't physically go to our independent bookshops, it may well be that for many people they're, they're using them or they're turning to them more than, uh, more than they were before. Yeah, and honestly, if we just don't use them, then they're not going to be there when all this is over. So, yeah, definitely a reassessment of my own buying habits has, uh, has, been, has been there as well. In terms of, like, you're talking about books for children, the comfort reads are a big one for me at the moment as well. So things that totally escape um, the world of the, uh, of the pandemic. And I always find that Early Dickens is a real comfort read for me. I've got an audio book of sketches by Boz, which I think was his first book published. And it's um, and I've been listening to it as I've been doing my exercise every day, biking around London and uh, listening to sort of his accounts of uh, Greenwich Fair and uh, what's going up around uh, places nearer to where I live as well. It's been it's been pretty interesting, actually, with the empty streets and somehow Dickens's words pulsating through my ears. It, there is a it's been quite a sort of uh, evocative and ghostly experience. Samir, thank you. I think we'll leave it there. That was Samir Rahim, our Arts and Books editor. Uh, and after this short break, you can hear Samir with Colin McCann. Colin McCann, thanks so much uh, for joining us down the line from uh, Vermont. How are you? 
Thank you. I'm, I'm uh, holed up in a cabin in the woods in, in Vermont, which sounds sort of idyllic, but uh, can drive you a little bit crazy at times, too. Uh, well, I'm in my flat in Islington, so um, <laughs> we are on the other side of the world, out of the office, but uh, trying to uh, trying to carry on uh, as much as we can. It's a huge, epic world and a tiny one at the same time, too, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, that's that's the wonderful thing about it. But of course, that's the difficult thing about it as well when you come to infection spreading and uh, and all the rest of it. Um, we're, yeah. So we, we're not talking about the virus now. We're talking about something uh, different. We're right. talking about uh, a paragon, which is the name of your new novel. And it's about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I wanted to ask you, Colm, it's one of the best documented and most written about conflicts in the world. Um, what did you think that writing a novel about it uh, could add? It's a good question. Um, I think writers, we we work towards our obsessions, um, you know, and one of the things that happened to me is that after writing a novel called Transatlantic, which was basically about the um, Irish peace process, or, or large portions of it were anyway, I was... Um, talking with a, a number of people who were mentioning what was going on in the Middle East. And I realized how confused I was uh, and how little I knew about what was going on in Israel and Palestine. And I, I sort of started reading about it and then I traveled uh, over there and it became a thing that I thought I wanted to, to, to write about it in order to figure out sort of how I felt about it and also maybe to disrupt the comfortable narrative uh, that, that, that had been you know placed in front of me in, in certain ways and and confront some of the confusion about it and, and to, to, to acknowledge uh, my own confusion. I've been I've I've been doing this reading now for five years and and meeting people and traveling there and back and forth, and I'm probably more confused now than I ever was. And part of the process of my writing this novel was to acknowledge some of the political confusion, but then talk about the deep human connection that goes on. And and so uh, you know it was sort of reckless, um, but I think artists nowadays have to work out of a a reckless inner need and I sort of abandoned myself to to doing this novel but mostly based on the fact that I met two extraordinary men Rami and Bassam Rami Elhanan and Bassam Aramin who um, go around the world telling the stories of how they lost their daughters and that was the human connection uh, that propelled me into writing the novel. Yeah so let's talk a little bit more about Rami and, and Bassam they're sort of the the centre of, of the novel, so that you know they're real people. They they've had these real experiences, but you've created a novel about it. Um, yeah. When when did you first meet them, and, and and how did you hear their stories? So I went uh, over there with a with a group um, that, that I was travelling with, co-founder of an organisation called Narrative Four, which um, brings young people together to tell stories to one another. And we went over to to the West Bank and we went to Israel um, just to to um, scope things out and see what was going on. And went on this incredible trip, a twelve day trip, and met all sorts of people from from all sorts of backgrounds, whether they be uh, there were Palestinian rap stars and Israeli writers and artists and um, even settlers and entrepreneurs and um, and towards the end of the trip, about t- uh, about ten days in, I was in outside Jerusalem um, in a town called Beit Jala. And I walked into the small office with uh, with my group, and there were two men sitting there at the at the table. And 
they started to tell their story and they uh, i mean they took ev- they pinched every ounce of oxygen out of the air it was quite extraordinary and uh, i was completely changed by hearing the stories of how they operated in the world and how they had lost their their, their daughters it was a cold november uh, evening it was dark by about five o'clock and i remember walking out uh into the the, the streets of beit jala uh and thinking I, I i had been disrupted in in a beautiful way and i was changed by having heard these two extraordinary men so, so just to make it clear to everyone so rami's daughter and bassam's daughter they were both killed in separate incidents um weren't they yeah so uh, Rami lost his daughter Smadar uh, in 1997 in a suicide bombing in Jerusalem. Bassam lost his daughter in 2007 uh, when she was shot with a rubber bullet in the back of the head uh, by uh, a border guard in the West Bank. Now, uh, reality is is completely extraordinary, and you know this is a novel. But I will tell you that like, part of the beauty of all of this was how. Incredible stories happened um, to be. Um, Bassam, for instance, was 17 years old. He was sent to prison for seven years. In prison, he watched a documentary about the Holocaust. Uh, he was sort of thrown off balance by it. When he got out of prison at the age of 24, he started a an organization called Combatants for Peace, which in an extraordinary uh, gesture brought Israeli and Palestinians together to talk about what was going on, all who had been involved as soldiers. And two years after founding Combatants for Peace, his daughter then was killed. And um, Rami's son, Alik, had been part of combatants for peace on the Israeli side. And these two men knitted their lives together. And now they travel uh, around the world talking to anybody who will listen, saying uh, we need to to talk to one another. We need to listen to one another and we need to sort of penetrate uh, the, the silence. If we're, if we're going to, Bassam's phrase is, um, you know, if we don't know each other above ground, uh, we will certainly know each other six feet below ground. And their 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 call is um, a complicated one, but also, uh, I mean, elementally simple, saying that we, we actually have to learn to talk and listen to one another. I mean, the, the scene when Bassam uh, watches the Holocaust documentary is very powerful because you're expecting as a reader for him to have some kind of um, instantaneous revelation that, oh, yes, no, the Jews suffered as well. And this might be why right. Israel exists and all the rest of it. But but uh, right. but as you write, and presumably this is taken from your interviews and discussions with him, he actually uh, he felt a sort of sense of. You know, he said he wanted to see Jews die. You know, he almost enjoyed yeah. watching the documentary. There's a very, very dark moment for him to sort of expose, isn't it? And similarly with Rami, you write about how, you know, he didn't, before he got involved in these organisations, he didn't really fully see Arabs as fully human. He didn't really mm-hmm. examine the conflict very much. He just tried to put it out of his mind. Yeah. Yeah, these men um, opened their lives to me in the most extraordinary way. Um, they told me, um, I, 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 so I went to Israel and Palestine on numerous occasions. I, you know, I traveled with uh, Rami on his motorbike. I traveled with Bassam in his car. We got together. I stayed in their houses. I met their families. I spent significant amount of, t- of time with them. And, and, and they began to open up and they would tell me these things about their lives and about the significant moments in their lives that were truly sort, sort of heart opening. And 
you know, I began to realize that, you know, these were very complicated men. They, they contained the, those Whitman-esque multitudes, uh, if you will. So also they had, you know, Whitman says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And I, I tried to capture some of that or all of that, if, if you will, um, in the novel. It, it was a, a kind of, um, I don't know how to really talk about it, um, but every time I got with them, they would sort of scuff up my expectations of what the simple truth might be. And that's part of what the novel tries to do, tries to scuff up your expectations of uh, um, some of the, the, the narratives that um, sit around the whole Israeli and Palestinian question. Uh, it sort of says that it is it, it is not as easy as uh, one might be led to think. And I think that's, that's sort of, I don't know if you agree, but I think that's sort of happening everywhere. You know, I live in uh, the United States and looking at political parties and things that are happening, there's a real infantilization of the American imagination and the American mind. And I don't think people are quite as red or as blue as uh, their political parties want them to be. I think they're, they're, much, they're, they're much more purple, if you will. And I'm really interested in our ability now to, um, to acknowledge contradiction. I'm also really interested in the idea that um, we should and could say in answer to certain questions, well, you know, I don't know. Let's explore that. Let's listen to each other. Let's talk to one another and not come indoors, close the curtains and sit in a peculiar pre-designed box, whether that be a political box or a corporate box. Um, and, um, you know, I like people and I, I really like their inherent contradictions. And I think maybe it's the job um, of the writer to try and capture some of that. Yes, compared with the writing about um, you know, the Irish peace process and something that's closer to you personally, was it was it in a way more difficult in some ways writing about something uh, very different? But was it also, did it give you opportunities maybe to see things that people at the heart of the conflict maybe couldn't see? Yeah, I mean, it's not for, for me to judge. And, you know, I, I have great respect for the people who, uh, you know, who look at this book and say, well, you know, how can a, a sort of middle class Irish person go into uh, this area of the world and truly understand it? Um, I went in acknowledging uh, my my ignorance about it. Uh, I went in very curious. I went in to sort of hopefully celebrate the um, the cultures that were there and to try to understand and to broaden my own sense of understanding um, by engaging with these people. And, you know, Rami and Bassam have been extraordinarily uh, generous in relation to their interpretation of the novel and what they think it can do and will do. And I've, I've been very lucky to have good reads from, uh, you know, various sides that are going on. And Perhaps it helped to be Irish. Perhaps it helped that I had studied um, the Irish peace process. But really, I think it's about what you and I do as artists is that we learn to we learn to listen. Um, and and the most important thing for me was not to be didactic. I, I would much more pref I'd much more prefer to I don't know to 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 allow a reader to to go into a book and to come out with her own interpretation um, i'm not interested in telling people what to think but i'm i, I am interested in allowing people into a new uh, space 
so they can make up their their own story about it. I mean, uh, the title, which is a paragon, um, is a shape with a countably infinite number of sides. And one of the things about that is that you can uh, arrive at a finite point within the, the given shape and also acknowledge it, that it is infinite. And one of the things that I wanted to say is that we're all somehow complicit. We're all there. You know, Jerusalem in particular is a very interesting place. And if you think about that area of the world, it's the meeting point of three continents. It's the birthplace of, you know, at least three uh, major religions. There's so much there that in many respects, all of us have sort of um, visited there in one form or another. And, uh, and I wanted to try and engage with that idea and say that this story of Smadar and Abir, these two girls that were killed needlessly, is really our story. And it could happen in Brixton. It could happen in Belfast. It could happen in Beirut. It could happen in Beijing, wherever it happened to be. The, this story is a sort of, um, is a story that can take place everywhere. It's also about a story about friendship about um, two men who should be enemies, who, who are not. And they use the power of their grief as a weapon to try and bring a little, just a little light to the world. And, and, and I think it's a pretty extraordinary story. I think they are amazing men. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, walking through Jerusalem, um, as I'm sure you have, you, you do get the sense that these definitely parallel hostile worlds where people are in their own they've got their own spaces to go to they've got their own uh, narratives in their head about um what the space means and what they believe and what's interesting in in, in your novel is that you try and interweave the the narrative in quite a sort of complex ways so yeah. the stories get told and retold can you tell us a bit about the formal aspects of the novel and how you um, how you try to do that yeah, um, 
so the novel is uh, told in one thousand and one different sort of cantos. Um, some of them like a couple of pages long, some of them just, a, you know, a word or two long. And it kind of felt to me for the first time ever, I've been writing for 30 plus years as a novelist. And um, for the first time ever, it felt to me that um, uh, I was writing a piece of music. I think all literature um, should be music and musical. In fact, I, I spend a lot of my time, you know, going around my apartment, reading my stuff aloud and, and my kids saying, oh, my God, there goes dad again, saying bad words. But um, uh, I'm really interested in in rhythm, sound. In fact, I would sacrifice many things for, to, to get the music of the language uh, correct. So in doing this particular novel, it felt like I was a weird conductor, you know, in front of a, a, a theatre of musicians who I didn't necessarily know at first and asking them to play and trying to bring a sort of coherent music to it um, at the same time as working sort of contrapuntally uh, in, in, in getting a sound that was both about fiction and nonfiction because it is a novel, but it's about two real men. And, and every now and then, an extraordinary thing would happen. I, I would think I was getting the, the novel right. And then down at the end of the imaginative hallway, uh, the door would burst open, a big blaze of light would come in and somebody would be carrying uh, an instrument, the like of which I had never seen before. And they would ask to, you know, be involved in this sort of orchestral thing that I was that, that, that I was trying to create. It was so in other words, it was, uh, you know, a very difficult novel um, to to hold together. But it felt to me that in the end that it, there was something symphonic that I was going for. All that said, I have to tell you that I am not a musician at all. <laughs> I'm the world's worst person to bring to a party because I do sing, but I can't. So uh, but it did it did feel uh, honestly, it did feel like I was um you know, conducting some sort of music and taking pieces from from lots of different backgrounds and, and, and then pulling them all together in a in a tapestry. Yes, there's lots of sort of cultural knowledge here about sort of um, uh, you know, the Bible, Judaism, Islam and uh, the Thousand and One Nights, of course, you've uh, you've referred yeah. to as well. So it, 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 it's not just these two characters, these two real people's stories. You draw in all sorts of other things. And I wonder what you felt that um, added to the sort of mosaic of the tale? You know, um, I don't think that writers necessarily know what it is that we're doing. I don't um, really know. I think readers think that we're smarter than we actually sometimes happen to be. I did it on feel alone. It felt right. It felt right to, you know, to bring in the music of elsewhere. One of the most important discoveries that I had early on is that Israel and Palestine happens to be on the second busiest migratory route for birds um, um, in the world. And so it struck me that birds that were flying over, say, the West Bank were coming from South Africa or they were coming from Ireland or they were coming from Sweden. And all of these stories were being carted in from uh, from elsewhere. And so, so, so that simultaneously, while something was happening in Israel and Palestine, it was being brought to other parts of the world. And so the form of the novel which is sort of scattered and takes place uh, everywhere, became a sort of very intentional sort of thing because I wanted the reader to, to understand that this is not necessarily a foreign place. This is not necessarily uh, a foreign story. 
this is a story that belongs to us too. And in fact, one of the, the tricks of the book, and I've never even really talked about this, one of the tricks of the book is that um, the reader becomes the narrator. So right in the very center of the book, there's a, an acknowledgement that it's you and it's me, and we're in this together. And let's listen to this story of you know Rami and Bassam and their daughters, and let's acknowledge that, that it's part of our story too. Yes, and you do allow the reader to sort of build up the picture through sort of fragments, as it were, going along. So you do, that's a really interesting way you draw the draw the reader in, I think. I was always interested I, I, in the idea that, yeah, sorry, Karen. No, sorry, sorry. So, no, no, I, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I really like my readers. I know that might sound, sound weird. Um, I like meeting them. And when I talk to them then afterwards and, and, and they fill out the book for me. I often feel that, that, that my readers are far more intelligent than, than I could ever be. And, and, you know, I end up being a bit of a magpie and taking some of what they say and building it into my own theory of a novel. But, you know, a lot of the time um, we're sort of operating from the this, this seat of our pants and hoping that the music of this will, will, will touch people. So Michael Andache, whom I adore, talks about being, you know, three or four pages ahead of his reader and trying you know, always to acknowledge uh, what's going to happen to the reader as she or he enters into the narrative. And it's the main main personalities here, Bassam and um, and Rami. They're both storytellers as well, aren't they? And one of the interesting things is how they tell and retell the stories of their own, the loss of their of their daughters and the way they change the story and the way they, in a way, deal with the trauma through through storytelling. Right. Uh, it was extraordinary. The first time I heard their story, I thought that they they were telling it for the first time. I was hearing it for the first time ever, but also thought that they were telling it for the first time ever. I later learned that they'd already spoken to two other groups earlier that day. And then I learned that sometimes Rami and Bassam tell this story five, six times a day. Which is really extraordinary because because they're they're not actors, but they when they tell the story, they make you feel as if you are hearing it for the very, very first time. And what was interesting about all that is that I went to them and said, I want to tell your story. And they said, OK, fine, fair enough. We've had lots of stories written about us in the newspapers and so on. And I said, but I don't know if you if you understand what I'm saying. I want to write a novel. I want to imagine what it feels like. Uh, to be you guys. And one of the things that I had to imagine was how do you as a um, a person tell the same story to different people four, five, six times a day for basically what becomes um, the, the rest of your life? But they believe in in the force of using their grief as a, as a weapon, as I said earlier, in order to help other people engage uh, with the idea of what's going on. And so for me, as a writer, I had to, I had to think of them, you know, telling the story. But then when I, I showed them the book and we were very close and we traveled together and I showed them pages as we went along, um, it was very difficult for them to read the book. They've been extraordinarily generous about it. But when they read the book, they thought, oh, oh this is, you know, I, I'm actually experiencing this uh, for the first time ever. And um, that was a that was a real moment between us. We traveled before the coronavirus 
hit, we were traveling in the United States and we were, um, we were going to, we went to um, to New York together, to Boston together, to uh, Pittsburgh and a few other places. And it was, it was incredible to be on stage uh, with two characters from my novel and have them talk about themselves as characters in a novel and what I had imagined and, and what it had done to them as readers. It's very powerful their uh, their friendship across uh, across the the divide. I was also reminded of, uh, funnily enough, the ending of A Passage to India and Fielding and mm-hmm. Aziz, these two two characters from the opposite ends of the divide as well. Mm-hmm. But in that novel, the idea that people could be friends across this divide when the political situation still has not been resolved, i.e., in that case when Britain was still colonising India or in this case, when the occupation still exists. Some people might argue that, um, you know, you can't actually be friends with someone who's oppressing you, let's say. Uh, um, And actually, the solution is a political one, not sort of necessarily just two humans becoming friends, even, you know, no matter how admirable that might be. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, I understand it. And and in many ways, um, I uh, agree with that. Um, but there's been such a failure uh, of political engagement and, and part of the manipulation of uh, what's gone on is that the people have become sort of so alienated from one another and, you know, walls have been put up and psychological walls have been put up and lies have been told and so on, that Rami and Sam don't actually talk about a, a political situation in terms of one state, two states, eight states. They do both believe in the necessity to end the occupation. But part of their argument is that that, that nothing will happen politically uh, and nothing will, will honestly engage unless we learn to, uh, to, to look at one another in new and sort of profound ways. And that it takes a sort of um, shotgun leap into trying to understand what it means to be the other person. And that will not necessarily change your uh, political opinion, but it will change your human opinion. And that then in turn will help shape the politics. They're talking about stories and storytelling and pulling things from the ground up rather than uh, solutions, quote unquote, being pushed down upon people. This so-called deal of the century, this which Rami calls actually the meal of the century. Um, <laughs> they say, look, we, we cannot get to any proper, uh, you know, under, understanding until we begin to know one another. And it's really extraordinary to go to, uh, to Tel Aviv or to um, Ramallah and talk to these people who are extraordinary. I mean, if, if you took the capital of the imagination and, 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 and you applied it to the Palestinian and the is young Israeli people, they would be top of the Forbes list um, in terms of, you know, uh, what it's worth. The people are so engaged, so imaginative, so so brilliant, especially, I have to say, um, in, in the West Bank. The young people are on fire intellectually and um, and that's not acknowledged just four miles down the road. It's not seen. Um, and I think the more we tell this story or these sort of stories over and over again, we begin to put a small crack in the wall. And someday, uh, some young uh, Greta, or not necessarily young Greta, but but um, I mean, Greta could be 75 years old, will come along 
and crowdsource a way for us to talk to one another that you know might inspire a political movement and or a political solution. I don't see that that it has happened so far otherwise. So why not try this? Why not try to understand one another in a more powerful way to talk about the Nakba uh, as well as talking about um, the Holocaust, to talk about uh, water resources, to talk about, you know, what it feels like to be under occupation, to talk about walking through a checkpoint and so on. If we can begin to understand that, then we can maybe shape some sort of solution. And Northern Ireland, of course, which seemed so far away from a solution not that long ago, is, I mean, it proves that situations can change very quickly when there's when there's will on both sides. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that. I mean, the fact that Northern Ireland was had, you know, what was going on in Northern Ireland was going on for eight hundred years, and even. In the the late 1980s and the early 1990s, people would say there is no way on God's green earth that there will be any form of understanding that goes on here. And now, touch wood, we have had 22 years of a a peace process, which is risky and and sometimes cumbersome and sometimes a little bit shaky, uh, but it's there. And the other the thing is that the Bassam and Rami talk about is that these things actually happen. In fact, they feel that it must eventually happen. And Bassam talks about the the extraordinary idea that there is now an Israeli embassy in Berlin and there is a a German embassy in Tel Aviv. And that's Bassam, the Palestinian man, who's saying what what a miracle that is after what had happened in um, the 1940s. They both firmly believe in the possibility of, you know, some sort of change. Are they naive? No. Are they sentimental? No. But they're full of sentiment and they know how difficult it it happens to be over there, but they're willing to take a risk. They risk themselves. uh, They risk humiliation. When they go to schools, for example, in Israel, there are sometimes riots outside the school because Bassam is going into a school to talk to young Israeli kids and they think well he spent seven years in prison he's a terrorist you know and so on how um, both Rami and Bassam they they stand up they go through the gates together and they go in and they talk to the young people in the school halls or the cafeterias or whatever or classrooms or wherever it happens to be and they feel that if they can change one mind in that school just for just capture one little crack in the wall they, they've done their job um, and that's what they do over and over and over again which is really quite extraordinary the, the patience it takes to believe that change is possible is extraordinary but then as you say some of the, sometimes this stuff happens very 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 quickly so we shouldn't give up hope then you know really think that we shouldn't give up hope uh, it's kind of hard to say in like these days and times uh, you know you look at what what's going on around us but i firmly believe that you know to be to be a good optimist you have to be a cynic first so so the really good optimist is, is strong enough to to embrace cynicism and say the cynics are right you know they are right it's a pretty crappy world it's dark it's troubled etc etc but so what 
that's that that's no great revelation it's it doesn't it, it's not a really a brilliant piece of philosophy or thinking to say that 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 we're in really dark times we all know that the the true optimist is the one who says okay we're in really dark times uh, what are we going to do about it how are we going to to engage and um rip things open and turn turn our hearts backwards a few notches um which is what these these um two men are are trying to and lots of people are trying to do it you look at like the young people who are doing the the, the climate activism and and things like that they're the ones who have the the jewel uh, i don't i don't know how to say it, the jewel strength of cynicism along with optimism that we can still save the things that are going on uh, around us colin mccann Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all from us this week. Thank you very much for joining us on the Prospect interview. We'll see you again at the same time next week. In the meantime, do please browse our paywall-free website. Yes, the paywall is still down uh, for all the writing on ideas that matter in politics, culture and society. If you enjoyed the Prospect interview, please do leave us a rating and a review on whichever platform you're listening on. It really does help other listeners find us. Rebecca Lou was our producer. My name is Steve Bloomfield. Stay safe. Goodbye. Being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.